Live from Your Mind Productions presents On the Threshold. Episode 7, Artistic License. Welcome back to the Glazer Files. For the first time, we have a guest, VR artist Zoe Evans. She has a collection of poetry which she believes to have been written by Baron Erasmus Brown, describing his hallucinations after his alleged kidnapping and brain surgery. So much skepticism in a single sentence. Alleged, believes, hallucinations. Are you suggesting that I should be less skeptical? On the contrary, I love skepticism of everything, especially one's own worldview. That's what I love about being an artist, helping to liberate my audience from their preconceptions, their tired, all too limited ways of seeing the universe. I like to think that the human mind is the ultimate canvas on which I paint my art. What do you mean? Well, ever since I was a little girl, I've been fascinated with how colors and music can so directly evoke emotions. Even without the context, the Jaws theme inspires the anxiety of a stalking predator. Beethoven's pastoral induces the calm of a relaxed morning full of promise. National anthems stir patriotism, an inexplicable feeling of camaraderie with millions of people that the individual will never meet. It's as though the musician directly molds the will of the listener, bypassing their conscious mind to reach a deeper aspect of their psyche. If that's your goal, then why not go into music? Oh, music is hardly the only way to circumvent what you would call the rational mind. I would have just as easily explained it with the psychological effects of colors, but I was mindful of the fact that your listeners are listening and not seeing. I always try to take full advantage of the strengths of the medium. Thank you for that, I suppose. You wanted to discuss the theory behind your art? Yes, you're familiar with ASMR. That pleasant tingling sensation that some people say they get when they're being whispered to or examined or whatever? Oh, there's so much more to it than that, but close enough, yes. There's a sense of comfort and intimate presence to it. Personally, though I haven't seen any scientists propose this yet, I suspect that it's a vestigial remnant of primate grooving behavior, await monkeys to sit still long enough for another monkey to find and pick all the ticks off their back. So, in your art, you're trying to produce an ASMR effect in viewers? No, no, no nothing quite that simple at all. No, I'm seeking far deeper revelations. 
You know what I've always found strange about ASMR? It seems that a massive number of people can experience it when exposed to the right stimuli, but it hadn't ever been named or talked about widely at any point until 2010 or so. And... So, assuming it's not a new phenomenon, that means that humans have been having this experience, or at least been able to have this experience, for hundreds of thousands of years, but haven't expressed it to each other at all for millennia. Well, with a few exceptions on the fringes. So, that invites the question of what other unknown mental states are just waiting to be inspired by the perfect arrangement of stimuli? What unimagined worlds are yet to be discovered within our own minds? Discovering and inspiring those states is the purpose of my art. But how would you even go about finding totally new mental states using art? I think it would be much easier to do that scientifically or, you know, with drugs. Oh, you're not entirely wrong that chemical alterations are often the quickest way to induce some of these types of experiences. There's a good reason that Tiago Cabral used ayahuasca to commune with Oaño Mutilado, and brain scans have found that deep meditation and religious experiences are almost neurologically identical to taking various psychoactive drugs. But for an artist like me, where's the fun or challenge in that? Besides, we artists have traditions of our own on which to build. What do you mean? Are you familiar with Jerry Hunt? Uh, I'm afraid not. Jerry Hunt was a truly brilliant experimental composer, occultist, and technical engineer from Waco, Texas. Did you say occultist? Yes. A Rosicrucian since the age of 14, he was something of a prodigy in the field, as he was in so many things. And much like alchemists, he encoded much of his occult insights into his music, most obviously elements of John Dee's and Edward Kelly's Enopian work, but subtler elements are woven in elsewhere for more knowledgeable practitioners. But, uh... I suppose one facet that the uninitiated would recognize today would be that some of his performances evoke an ASMR response though he performed them at least two decades before ASMR would gain more widespread public interest. Even his death was a masterful work of art. He taped his own suicide via a carbon monoxide mask he invented himself to avoid suffering the ravages of lung cancer. In the video, he explained the workings of the device as a gift to others seeking freedom. Work like his has been an inspiration to me, leading me towards those uncharted realms of the psyche. And thus far, I've found that virtual reality is the most effective vessel for this voyage. It allows the artist near complete control of the viewer's experience, free from physical limitations. You wanted to talk about your cathedral? Yes, the Cathedral of Bar Shahat, a virtual reality experience I finished in 2018. It's intended to evoke the inversion of religious ecstasy. I'm sorry, the inversion of religious ecstasy? Yes. Religious ecstasy is a well-documented phenomenon throughout the world, wherein the individual experiences a sense of divine transcendence, of timelessness, of the unity of all things, of revelations beyond words. It is the sort of experience that forges a sense of cosmic purpose. 
It's also the sort of experience that prophets are prone to telling others about, which is why they are the foundations to religions. Humans hunger for the hope and certainty blazing from these prophets' convictions to give meaning in their own lives, even if the follower's own grasp is a merely dim reflection of the prophet's fading dream. But there are also revelatory experiences that the masses universally shun. Their prophets condemned as lunatics for voicing alienating realities that no one wants to hear. They are not exalted, but broken. Their accounts silenced if they are ever spoken at all. And so humanity at large has been denied even a second-hand experience of what they have felt in favor of more pleasant imaginings. And so the cathedral is intended to what? Cause viewers to have these sorts of revelations? Epiphanies that, that have been woefully neglected due to a quirk of social dynamics. That work being that they're universally condemned and those who talk about them are shunned as outcasts more or less and that's what you want to have happen to your viewers oh most of them will only experience a shadow of the full effect but then a mind must be specially soothed or perhaps prepared for the totality of it I find that when I'm watching the subjects, I can typically tell how much of the experience will fully embrace them by the time they reach the altar on which lay the corpse of Jesus Christ. The what? Oh, there you've got me to spoil one of the altars. But don't worry too much. That one is merely a minor prelude to what is deeper inside. I see. And... At what point do viewers typically have epileptic seizures? <laughs> Is that supposed to be a gotcha question, Philip? I'm just warning our listeners to be wary in case they're sensitive to such things. There was a June 2018 Guardian article which highlights several instances of viewers of the cathedral having seizures including several people without uh, histories of photosensitive uh, yes, epilepsy. Yes, that is a property of the precise frequency of the candle flickering, a deeply unfortunate side effect. So you have fixed it then? No, oh, that would be impossible. You see, temporal lobe epilepsy is often intertwined with religious ecstasy and related phenomena. So ultimately the reaction is evidence that the piece approaches my goals. I tend to return to it in a few years once I've had the chance to reflect on the necessary refinements. I see. So these poems, which you say are the ones written by Baron Erasmus Brown. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. Remember our agreement, Philip. I get to tease my current project as well. After all, his poems helped inspire it. Okay. How did these poems inspire your current work? Well, the installation is intended to invoke an experience I call mnemonokyclosia. And what is named It's a sensation that? of re-experiencing the totality of one's memories over and over again to the exclusion of one's immediate surroundings. There's little publicly available documentation of it, though Nietzsche makes a coded reference. There are some similarities to post-traumatic stress disorder, but these are ultimately superficial. 
as that is restricted solely to the traumatic event, and I believe that the psychological mechanisms are entirely unrelated. In Mnemonokaiklosia, one's whole life is played over and over again in exquisite detail. Are you formally trained in psychology? I didn't see anything like that in your university records. <sighs> I can assure you that my knowledge of the psyche is at least as strong as the feeble grasp held by most of Freud's intellectual descendants. But the real question you should be asking is how my project might aid your investigations. Say, in helping one of those formally trained psychologists you seem to hold in such high regard, or perhaps a certain delivery driver, or any other of your listeners who might have memory issues. Subtle. <laughs> Sometimes subtlety is overrated. We can discuss that later. First, tell me about the poems. <laughs> Fixated like a bloodhound, aren't you, Philip? But fine. The collection is called Songs of the Abyss. It is clearly in the style of a romantic late 19th century English poet. It's credited to Desiderius Deniarus, a pseudonym that is likely a reference to the inventor of the diving suit, and the motif of navigating different depths persists throughout the book much as one would expect based on the first portion of Dr. Powell's account that you read a few episodes ago. There's no record of the Baron publishing any of his poetry. Oh, please. You can drop the skeptic act. You wouldn't have bothered to investigate and interview me if you didn't think the first two pages I'd sent you were genuine. I'm sure you're well aware that poets have been publishing under pen names for millennia. And, as agreed, once I hear this interview on the airwaves, you'll have the rest of it. Well then, thank you for your time. Ah, <laughs> uh, 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 show notes, Philip. Links to Zoe Evans' work are available in the show notes. I'm Gregory Moss, creator of On the Threshold. I'd like to thank Dakota Clark for voicing Zoe Evans today. I'd also like to thank Rod Stasek for letting us use Jerry Hunt's distinctive music for background in this episode. He didn't even ask for me to mention him, but if you really want unique music with occult influences, I'd recommend checking out Jerry's work. And if you're finding that the strange sounds of On the Threshold are resonating with something deep inside your own soul, then please, sing of it to others that they might join our ever-growing chorus. Every new voice adds immeasurably to the beauty that we can make together. The Brotherhood of the Mountain Unbowed had stood watch over the cloth for all the centuries since the angel had entrusted it to them. The monks lived ascetically in the grand temple complex on the mountain's windswept summit, eating only the bare fruits their hard labor coaxed the cold, rocky soil to bear for them. They spent hours each day contemplating their task the divine purpose for which they endured such hardships. 
These meditations gave them strength in resisting those who strove to claim their temple, for it was whispered that the monks must guard a precious treasure indeed. The whispers inspired conquerors, mercenaries, and adventurers to seize the temple's prize in many a great battle that stained the whole of the mountainside red. Though they suffered grievous losses, the Brotherhood always endured. Their eternal devotion withstood the greed of the worldly, even as they mourned their sacrifices, their triumphs renewed their faith all the stronger. Those that they defeated spoke in awe of their further, spreading legends of their prowess throughout the land, inspiring prince and peasant alike to join them in their mission. The monks were strict. Only those who passed grueling tests of body, mind, and soul were accepted into the order. Thus did the Brotherhood maintain its ranks with only the truly devout and fit to endure their vigil. So the centuries rolled on, the monks stoically standing strong against ice and steel alike. On another blisteringly frigid day on the mountain top, a sudden flash of light outshone the sun. The angel had returned. It stood before the cloth upon the altar. The brothers assembled, awaiting judgment. The angel spaketh unto them. Thanks for watching this for me. It's always great to know that you have a towel ready when you get out of the bath. And the angel departed with the cloth.